one, one final um, interesting point. I, I actually saw that this was uh, a, one of the advertising placards that was out in the foyer, and I, I didn't see the fine print there, but I, I, I saw the title of the seminar. Uh, I saw this about a month ago, and my first thought was, well, that's really cool. I need to go to that. And then I was disappointed to see that I was actually the presenter. Um, but uh, I have, uh, in, in my research at, uh, at the University of Edinburgh, I did, uh, in, in, in studying life extension, I spent nine months just studying uh, about death, which was kind of heavy, a heavy subject, especially living in Scotland, and, and more from a philosophical, religious, theological perspective. Uh, and I, I think, uh, hopefully, it will inform uh, what's going on here. Um, I have... Uh, Basically, this is, this is kind of where I think we're going. This is things I've been mulling over the past couple of, of weeks. Um, the, the first thing is I, I want to spend some time and look at some of the trends in history that have shaped medicine, which have also shaped our view of death, uh, and, and including uh, not only our view of death, but actually the way we die. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my... I get a strong sense that... Um, um, doctors and physicians are not sure how to think about death, which <laughs> may, may come across as kind of a strange thing to say, but I think there is a deep, deep ambivalence within the medical profession about, about death. When, you know, it, it, given all of these tremendous breakthroughs that we've experienced, is, is death now less acceptable? Is death now more of a failure? Have we, have we forgotten when to say when. Um, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not losing hope in medicine. There have been some very positive things like the development of hospice and palliative medicine. I'm, I'm not, wasn't planning on talking about those things this morning, but that would be part of an extended conversation. But I, I think at its core, and other, other philosophers and theologians have been examining this, um, th- there are real concerns that medicine itself, as a historical discipline, with a strong tradition for providing care, that medicine itself no longer has uh, within itself as a discipline a moral compass to, to, manage, uh, to manage and understand death. Uh, having said that, I've, I've also experienced nothing but positive things in working with physicians. I think they're, uh, for the vast majority, they are genuinely interested in caring for people and bringing health and healing and wholeness, but there seems to be, and I'm part of what we're going to talk about here, there are a lot of forces at work uh, from without medicine or on the outside of medicine that have exerted tremendous pressure on doctors and physicians and nurses and caregivers and administrators and hospitalists, and they all need our, they all need our fervent prayer. And so what I'd like to do is introduce some of those trends before we look at some more specifics, and I'm going to finish up with some um, more general principles concerning death and dying. So that's, that's where I think we're headed. And I'd like to start with uh, this book written by Katie Butler. It's called Knocking on Heaven's Door, A, a Pathway to a, a Better Death. Uh, it, it has heaven in the title, but it, it, is, it is not a happy book. It was uh, written just last year. But I think it's a, a, an excellent book. Uh, Katie actually is a journalist in San Francisco, and she writes in, in very intimate detail the, the, the story of her mother and her father and her father battling a stroke and the conditions 
that led to what she called a prolonged dying. Um, in, in this book, she talks about how her father's life was actually turned into a prolonged dying after one decision that was made, uh, in, in her words, in hurry and in hope. Uh, one year after her father had suffered a fairly major stroke at the age of 79. She writes, uh, he was gravely disabled yet clear-minded enough to know it. Uh, and at this, at this particular moment in his life, he was outfitted with a pacemaker without much thought about the long-term consequences. What had happened is that uh, he had needed some hernia surgery. Uh, and when they did some, uh, some pre-op testing, it was found that he had a very slow heartbeat. And so they were concerned that when you put a patient of that age with a, a slow heart under anesthesia, you may have some catastrophic heart failure. So they decided, well, we will install a pacemaker in order to bring her father's heart rate up to uh, a, a stronger rate. What she observes is that, uh, you know, there was an era that if he had just continued to grow old before a pacemaker was even invented, nobody would have called his heart diseased at all. They just would have said it wore out. Uh, But what happened? Uh, What happened is that uh, this pacemaker was installed with a 10-year battery. And so uh, his heart kept beating at a very strong rate, but this did nothing to prevent seven years of continued life with the onset of dementia, incontinence, near mutedness, and in her words, misery and helplessness. And the real tragedy, she says here, is that uh, Katie's mother, uh, as a, uh, a rigid, tireless perfectionist, uh, was so dedicated to caring for her husband that her life was destroyed in the process. And at one point, she calls, recalls a very poignant conversation with her mother, where she, uh, she said, my mom told me point blank, we need to get this pacemaker shut off. She said, in her words, your father is killing me. And so uh, they began to, uh, they began to uh, talk to doctors, and uh, rightly so, doctors were profoundly uneasy with this. In fact, they said, this is unethical. This um, you know, we don't know what could happen, but you, dis- you disconnect that battery, your father could go into immediate cardiac arrest and die on the spot. To which Katie's mother said, in, and I think in a fit of anger, she said, good, I think that's what he wants. Um, but doctors are committed to preserving life. And so once you install something, it's not all that easy to undo it. Uh, but Katie did, uh, Katie's mother did start pushing back. Um, she did receive advice from another good doctor who said, you do not have to do everything the doctors tell you. So she started canceling neurology appointments to determine whether or not her husband had suffered further strokes. What's the point, she thought. Um, she declined to put him on Aricept for dementia and Coumadin. It's an anti-stroke drug which also carries... Uh, a heightened risk of uncontrollable bleeding. She stopped that medication and consented to only one heart test. Why? She said he's got a pacemaker. These tests require several hours of fasting beforehand, and he's just not that, he's not in that good a shape. He was now in his, you know, 85, 86. Uh, what I found interesting uh, is I'm, I'm going to quote here a, a, a very poignant paragraph that just raises a whole host of 
uh, deep moral questions, uh, some that I hope we can get at here today. Um, she writes, at this crossroads, as she's dealing with her father, even our each miraculous life-extending technology pulls up from the depths a tangle of our most deeply held and unarticulated moral questions and puts them under a halogen light. How grateful are we for the gift of life and what are we willing to undergo for more of it? Would we rather die too soon or too late? How do we make sense of the loss of human bonds that death brings even to those who believe in heaven? And which, by the way, Katie Butler does not believe in heaven, but she recognizes that there's a tension there. Does a caregiver's suffering have moral standing? And what's, what is interesting is that most bioethicists, when they do their calculations of these four principles, um, that doesn't really enter into it. Can a daughter express her love for her father by doing all she can to let him die, or is that an expression of her selfishness and buried hate? What would my father have said that day if Dr. Rogan's office, if the pace at Dr. Rogan's office, if the pacemaker had been discussed as a choice point rather than a necessity? What if Dr. Rogan had told him that its battery would last 10 years? What would my mother have said if the doctor had asked her how she was coping with the caregiving? And then I've highlighted this question in yellow. Uh, uh, I understand where it's coming from, but I also find it morally objectionable. But she, that these are her words, what if Dr. Rogan had asked my father whether he felt his life was still worth living? Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that, that question later um, because I think uh, that's a deeply troubling question and that, that's the question of our modern era that is focused on autonomy and choice and having life on our own terms. Uh, but I, 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 again, I'm not, I'm not here to criticize Katie or her mother for, for what happened. Um, the, the rest of the story, I'll, you know, I, I don't want to give the book away. Um, I do think it's worth a read. Um, the, the, it, was, uh, it was determined shortly after uh, Katie's father passed away. Uh, the, uh, the Joint Committee, the American Heart Association, the Heart Rhythm Society, American College of Cardiology issued a consensus statement that if an individual wants a battery disconnected or they want a pacemaker deactivated, this is morally acceptable. It is not assisted suicide, nor is it euthanasia. But this decision came too late for them. Katie's father did suffer more strokes. And um, for all the negative that's in here, there are some wonderful uh, statements about how their family was delivered by caregivers who came to their home, palliative medicine, um, hospice care, and uh, she only writes in the most glowing terms of uh, the care that was given her dad when it was recognized that there was no more fighting to be done. We're not trying to care for this patient by curing them. We're trying to care for them by making them comfortable. Uh, and then uh, Katie's mom, uh, shortly after this incident, it was revealed that she had some severe heart defects. And by this time, she's 85, and the physicians were, in her case, advocating or suggesting surgery. And when she saw that one of the risks, especially at her age, was uh, increased likelihood of a stroke, that was all she needed to hear to turn that down. Um, and after that conversation with her doctor... Um, she called up her daughter and started giving things away because she knew her heart was failing her, 
but there was really uh, nothing that she felt needed to be done to correct that situation. We'll, we'll say more about, about that later. Um, how has technology shaped the way we die? Um, some of these are, are taken out of Katie Butler's book, who has cited them elsewhere. Um, if you want sources, I'll happily give you those. 40% of deaths now take place in a hospital. Um, 20% of those uh, happen in an ICU. Uh, it is interesting, to, if you look at the last two bullet points, the amount of surgery carried out on those patients who receive care under Medicare a third have uh, surgery in their last year of life, and one in ten would have surgery in their last month of life. Now, those could, could be for various reasons. Um, we are living longer, there's, there's no doubt. Um, current life expectancies are around 80 and 74, and those, um, we, we may have, uh, at least as medicine's being practiced and as healthy as we've become, that those numbers may actually uh, begin to fall over the next couple of decades because we now have... Uh, well, I guess what could be said is a near epidemic in type 2 diabetes from obesity. And so um, our, our, our kids, are, uh, many of them will not live as long as us if uh, they continue to uh, engage in unhealthy dietary practices. There may be some other reasons as well. Um, this contrasts this to 1900 when the average life expectancy was uh, around 50 um, reduced infant mortality rates uh, have contributed to this. Uh, acute illnesses like tuberculosis, smallpox. Um, we, we generally live under more uh, hygienic conditions. This is what the, the President's Council has uh, had to say, and I think this is a, a, a good assessment. Uh, the defining character of our time seems to be that we are both younger, longer, and older, younger. Older, longer, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I'm getting older, I know that. Um, we are more vigorous at ages that once seemed very old, and we are far more likely to suffer protracted periods of age-related disability and dependence because we live to ages that few people reached in the past. Um, and this is all because medicine has indeed Im improved quite uh, dramatically over the last several decades. So this means that uh, each of us are likely to spend a, a longer time of decline before we enter into some phase that, that we could call irretrievably dying um, if we don't die suddenly. Uh, the average American today will experience two years of significant disability before death. Then I found this, this figure just hard to fathom or believe, but uh, right now 90% of healthcare expenditures are devoted to providing care for those in their last two years of life, um, which, um, you know, given, given that money matters and makes our economy go, um, I think we are on just right on the precipice of a tidal wave of pro-euthanasia literature. I mean, it's already legal in several states. Um, coupled with our increasing sense of what suffering involves and our desire for autonomy, um, I, I envision an era, uh, maybe after we're gone, but an era where we start praising those um, brave heroes who, who offer, to, uh, offer to, to terminate their own lives through help with, from, from physicians. I mean, rightly, most physicians have trouble with this, but there are those who do not. I mean, why be a drain on resources um, when you can help save money for the next generation? I'm not advocating it. I just think that's coming. Um, 
again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be devil's advocate. Um, I, I find those things deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, here, here's, here's one of the, one of the projects or one trend that I think has influenced medicine quite strongly. It's been called by Gerald McKenney the Baconian Project. It has nothing to do with bacon. It, well, bacon is a person, but it has nothing to do with the food. Um, but he describes it as, as two fundamental principles that drive our culture and influence medicine profoundly. Uh, the elimination of suffering and the expansion of choice. I don't think these are necessarily bad things. I mean, um, if you have an illness, having more options, I, I have trouble seeing that as all bad. Um, choice can be a good thing. But uh, what happens when we don't know how to limit these things, we run into some, some quite considerable problems. The Baconian Project is named after, we'll just put him up here, uh, Francis Bacon. There he is um, in, his, in all his glory with his... Uh, Hat. He, he was an, an Anglican Christian um, and, and, and deeply devoted to God, but he also, uh, he also famously wrote several uh, philosophical works that argued for practicing a new kind of science. Uh, up until this time, uh, the methods of science were derived around uh, deductive analysis, where you try to figure out how everything fits together. This goes all the way back to Aristotle and Plato, uh, and what this means is that you don't really fully understand nature or how it works until you understand its purpose. So you could study a tree, uh, but unless you know what that tree is for, you haven't yet said everything about the tree. Well, Bacon said, well, that's all nice and good, but you know, uh, issues of purpose really aren't that critical for science. Why don't we go the other route. Why don't we go inductively? Let's just start investigating nature, not so that we can find out everything about purpose, but rather so that we can learn knowledge and put it to use and relieve the human condition to, to, to help fight disease, to help people live longer. And he couched all of this language uh, in, in Genesis, like this is a return to Eden before humankind sinned. And he used, uh, he's, he's drawing on uh, the creation mandate in Genesis for humans to, uh, to exercise dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and to multiply. And he used the term sovereignty and power. Let's use knowledge to return ourselves to a situation of sovereignty and power. So he, he wasn't a scientist, but he influenced how science was done. He was sharply critical of any physician's who dared to call a disease incurable. Uh, his position was, we just haven't learned enough yet. Now that we have a new method, we, we, we can do so. He also argued that we should be able to return to seven, eight, nine hundred year lifespans, a la Methuselah. I mean, wh why not? If, if indeed um, there was a period in our history when that's how long people lived, why can't we get back there through science? All, all to God's glory, all recognizing that while we're here on this earth, yes, we know that there is the, uh, the next life to come. Um, so this is, uh, this is from one of his works, The Great Instauration. Uh, he is talking about the restitution and reinvesting of man to the sovereignty and power. And don't worry about, I should have uh, excluded the, the parenthetical remark there. It doesn't really... It's not important. He's restoring humankind or man to sovereignty and power which he had in his first state of creation. 
and to speak plainly and clearly, it is a discovery of all operations and possibility of operations from immortality, if that were possible, to the meanest mechanical practice. So Bacon's project was actually, uh, was actually derived from, from within the Christian faith uh, and within, uh, by, by applying, uh, by applying this, these ideas and deriving them from Scripture. We need to restore dominion. We do this through science. So this is, this is what Bacon taught. Um, the problem is that this kind of... This, you know, there's, there's many, many good things that have come from his methods, by the way. Let me just say that briefly. Um, many of the great discoveries that we have witnessed in the last two to three hundred years have come because we've let go of trying to discern the purpose of things and rather just tried to figure out how they work and, and to put this knowledge into practice. Um, so there's much good that has come from this. H- however, uh, what happened uh, between Bacon and whenever this Baconian project has been identified is that it, this, this whole project has been secularized. I mean, God is no longer part of that equation. We have two fundamental movements known as the Enlightenment and Romanticism, where these two words that Bacon talked about, sovereignty and power, get reinterpreted, and they're reinterpreted without any reference uh, to God. So um, from Bacon to the Baconian project, we have uh, first the Enlightenment, then there's a counter-movement known as uh, Romanticism, and as I said, exercising power is no longer connected uh, to God. I'll, I'm going to be very brief in trying to discover or trying to discern or uh, discuss 300 years of history in one PowerPoint slide. Um, but what is the Enlightenment? Uh, it, it, it is a celebration of human power over the natural world, and it focuses specifically on, on human reason and rationality. This is when God starts to get pushed to the margins. In other words, rather than revealing on or relying on revealed truth, which we would say, you know, things like the Bible, um, that, that's not so important. Uh, rather, what is important is what we're able to discern by reason. So Immanuel Kant is uh, the, probably the, the hallmark philosopher of this movement. Um, and it should be noted, he was not a pagan, he was a Lutheran Christian, but he was a thoroughly rationally thinking Christian. Uh, and I use that term in, in the broadest possible sense because he didn't, want any, uh, he didn't want anything to do with this notion that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Okay, that's, uh, uh, why? Well, because we know from reason, right, that we, when people die, they don't, they don't come back to life. So... Um, now there's, Jesus is good for other things, but, but let's just let that one go. Anyway, Immanuel Kant said, have the courage to use your own reason. When he summarized, when he, when he said, what is the enlightenment? He said, this is what it is. So God gets pushed to the margins. Um, we have other things going on. The development of science continues marching on. Isaac Newton makes great discoveries. And we find that, um, you know, when, when Newton, for instance, can say we can, we can study the world and make sense of it and understand it just by studying its orderliness and its math, you no longer need God as an explanation. That, that was the furthest thing from his intention, but that's kind of what happened. So the Enlightenment, celebration of uh, rationality and reason, and yes, uh, we should be happy that we uh, at times are, are reasonable 
and can exercise reason. But there's that other vexing part of reason that Christians should confess, and that is the fact that we're sinners, and sometimes um, we can reason our, our way into sin quite easily. Uh, the counter the, the counter reaction or the reaction to this is known as romanticism. Um, the, the Enlightenment was excessively rationalistic, and and other philosophers began to think about this. I mean, aren't are we just thinking beings? Aren't we? Don't we have feelings? Don't we? Uh, isn't there a deeper part of us? What about our spirit? What about creativity? And so uh, other other philosophers began to think. The Enlightenment has missed something big, and uh, specifically self-discovery. Uh, if, if the Enlightenment can help you learn more about the world, Romanticism is more of an inward turn. It is the celebration of human expression and self-discovery and choice and, and artistry and all of these things that cannot be quantified by science and rationality. I mean, you may be able to uh, explain how the sun rises and sets, and you can do that scientifically, but you have done nothing to talk about how a sunset impacts you. You, haven't, you, can, talk about how, uh, you can talk about how color is different frequencies of light, but you have still not described a sunset. So uh, romanticism comes along as a, a, a counter-movement and says that there's, there's, there's self-discovery, there's self-realization, there's self-development. Notice the word self keeps coming up. Um, self-choice. Um, and this, these two movements, enlightenment and romanticism, uh, have been identified as being huge components of what it means to be the, a modern person, the modern self. Um, even today, we are uh, quite, uh, quite taken with ourselves and uh, self-development. Um, this movement influenced everything, theology, art, literature, music. Um, you know, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of modern theology, was influenced by this. Uh, and he famously turned systematic theology right on its head in, in reaction to this dry, arid, uh, medieval, rationalistic philosophy and theology about God. He said, theology is about our sense of divine dependence. And therefore, notice, no, notice what the starting point of theology is. And I'm going to move on here because I know this is kind of heavy. And it's, yeah, we're at 1 o'clock and I'm, I know we're full. Uh, anyway, um, theology becomes about human expression about God. It's no longer saying something about God. It's how God helps us feel divinely dependent on him. Um, art changes too. Um, art moves from, uh, from realism to more impressionistic art. Literature changes. Music changes. Um, you go from, you know, to Bach to Beethoven to Gabrielle Fauré. And there's, you know, if you've listened to any of those artists, there's quite a, quite a difference there. Um, here's, here's McKenney's summary of this project. And again, thanks, thanks for your patience here. Uh, I think this is, this is quite significant. He says, the commitment to eliminate all suffering combined with an imperative to realize one's uniqueness, that's romanticism, leads to cultural expectations that medicine should eliminate whatever anyone might consider to be a burden of finitude or to provide whatever anyone might require for one's natural fulfillment. 
Um, I, think, I think the reality is, is that when we approach our physicians with a problem, our expectations keep going up. And our definition of what constitutes suffering continues to broaden. And I'm not sure that medicine itself as a discipline has the resources to reflect on when some forms of suffering, frankly, are just too much. Too much to try to be overcome through, through medicine. Um, so so that, that's a challenge coming on the outside of medicine. There are some internal challenges. This is quite famous. Um, Henry Beecher uh, published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, and here I've given you some more de- depressing details. Uh, he, he didn't name individuals, um, but he cited uh, an, uh, anonymously 22 instances of abuse. And I think these, these aren't new. This is, this is probably 1940s, 1950s when these occurred. But he was shocked at how easy it was for him to come up with examples. Um, penicillin was deliberately withheld from servicemen with strep infections um, so that they could develop alternative means for preventing complications. They were never told this was going to happen. Um, without, without penicillin, there's an increased risk of rheumatic fever, and many of them came down with this. Um, probably the most troubling one was the example 17, where physicians injected live cancer cells into 22 elderly and uh, senile hospital patients without their knowledge um, so that they could study uh, how the body's uh, immunological processes might deal with this. Immunological, sorry. I'm, that's a hard word to pronounce. Um, and, and, and finally, another one, researchers, just because they wanted to study the bladder function of infants, um, inserted catheters in several newborns less than 48 hours old and took a series of x-rays to study the action of a bladder filling and emptying. Uh, and even in this report, the physicians happily reported that any risk, uh, any of the, the known risks of infection were avoided. Um, so, um, you know, now many in medicine reacted sharply to this by saying, look, this is, you know, this is before we had well-established ethical codes that would make this clear that we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, still others from outside of medicine and some within defended some of these researchers as pioneers and aren't pioneers always renegades anyway. Um, but I think those objections fail, frankly, to account for the moral outrage that we all experience um, when we hear these types of things. So there, there are some signs that there, there's problems from within medicine. Again, I don't think there's were widespread, but uh, it begs questions about whether medicine as a, as a discipline, as a tradition, has within itself moral resources to govern itself. Uh, and then uh, about a decade later, we have this famous case of Karen Ann Quinlan, um, on the, on the night of April 15th in 1975, uh, Karen Ann Quinlan, at age 22, was found in her bedroom in a coma. She had uh, reportedly been out uh, drinking and had taken some pills as well. Um, she never regained consciousness, and I think, uh, yeah, she, she, was, uh, she was held or kept, kept alive uh, on a respirator and was fed... Uh, intubated and was fed intravenously, um, food and water. But after several months, uh, there, there was just no progress, and it was clear that there would be no recovery for, uh, for, uh, for Karen Ann Quinlan. And so 
uh, it is interesting to note, I think sometimes her, her parents uh, get vilified, but they were, they were devout Roman Catholics, and they were guided by Pope Pius and his uh, work entitled The Prolongation of Life, which obligated Catholics only to use ordinary force, uh, not, it shouldn't be force, uh, ordinary efforts to extend life, uh, but there was no need for extraordinary efforts. Now, the devil is always in the details. What does ordinary and extraordinary mean? But in their interpretation, given this, uh, given this time in history, uh, a ventilator for them was considered unnatural and extraordinary. So they felt they were morally justified to have their daughter taken off of this artificial breathing apparatus. However, because they're good Roman Catholics, they recognize that food and water are natural and they are not medicine. So they, they, wanted, they wanted their daughter to continue to be fed, uh, not knowing what would happen if she would be taken off uh, the ventilator. Um, yes. Uh, the, the, the hospital just resolutely refused that request. They said, this, this, is, uh, this, is, this is immoral. This is, you, you, you can't do this. They actually threatened to bring charges of homicide uh, against the parents, and a big legal battle ensued. And this, this marks one of the landmark cases where uh, law and the courts start intervening into medicine. Um, and over time, uh, this, is, this was argued in New Jersey, that the Quinlan's case was upheld and they were uh, allowed to uh, disconnect the respirator. Um, I think wisely, however, that the physicians decided to, to gradually wean Quinlan off of the respirator to see if there might be some natural breathing and it turned out um, that she was able to breathe on her own. My, my understanding is that this would technically now be called something along the lines of a persistent vegetative state. Uh, they continued to feed her, but they moved her to an extended care facility where she lived for nine more years, never, never regaining consciousness. Uh, her parents continued to visit her every week, and she died of, finally of complications from pneumonia in 1985. But this case fueled, it, was, was, it just added fuel to the flame of this right to die movement because it was painted by some as you, you, you paternalistic, you know, overbearing doctors think you, think you know it all about life. You're all about life at all costs. I don't want to be hooked up to a machine. You're, you are not doing that to me. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate. I'm not saying I, um, I, my, my views are similar. I'll tell you what I think later um, for what it's worth. Um, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, David J. Rothman has written a wonderful book. It's, it's already 20-some years old uh, called Strangers at the Bedside where he, he looks, he, uh, he studied how medicine has been shaped and he said, strip away the rhetoric and the symbols and the Quinlan case was a contest between physicians on the one hand and patients and their legal advocates on the other. And this, I think, sadly, is that this is often what happens um, when you have difficult cases like this. Um, there was a time when we would happily say the physician knows best. They're the ones who are trained. They understand what's going on. There was once a bedside ethic. Any decisions about pulling a plug or removing some piece of support would happen between a family member or the patient and the doctor, and it would happen at the bedside, 
and there would be some type, it would be a case-by-case discussion, and that would be the end of it. Well, those days are long gone. So now, if you're in medicine, you are faced with this perennial, well, you know, perpetual tension uh, between being uh, perceived of as um, paternalistic on the one hand, um, but then the pendulum swings the other way, and it's as if physicians are just merely to be service care providers. Well, like, I have this need, these, this is what I'm suffering from, make me better. Um, so, you know, I, would, I don't envy anyone who practices medicine today because I think those are, those are, uh, those are real pressures um, that I, I'm sure um, some of you in this room face every day. Okay, uh, let's have some more challenges and then we'll, we'll move to something more positive. Um, the, the, the Hippocratic tradition. Um, medicine claims uh, that this, this matters on some level, although for the most part now, I don't know of any doctors who are actually required to swear upon this oath, but it does seem to have informed much of, uh, much of uh, medicine's understanding of ethics and, and what is appropriate. Apologies for the small text. This isn't the whole Hippocratic oath, but it is... Uh, it is, uh, it's noteworthy for several things. Notice line three. I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody if asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Um, scholars do agree that this document was written around, you know, something around 400 B.C. It's, it's old. Um, notice also that Christians have, you know, physicians especially have been in support of this notion of, uh, you know, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to conduct an abortion. Or at least it would have to be an exceptional case for that to, to, to take place. Uh, I will guide my life and my art. Uh, this, this next line is interesting, though, because it says, I will not use the knife, even on sufferers of stone. I presume that means even if uh, I might be punished. And I'm not even going to associate with anybody who uses a knife. Um, well, that's, that's, obviously, that's one that we've happily disregarded. Um, some of us may be here today because we've gone under the knife. Um, and so that, that can't be all, all bad. But... Um, there is a new ethic in town, and it, it questions some of these uh, aspects here that we Christians would like to continue to affirm. Um, it, it has been noted, too, I, I should, should point out that, um, you know, in, in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, Christians, there's plenty of evidence that Christians adapted this uh, to a more Christian context. Uh, and, and instead of, say, the opening line appeals, for instance, to Apollo, Asclepius, Hygieia and Panacea. These are, these are Greek gods and goddesses. Um, rather, um, there, are, there are Hippocratic oaths that have been altered by Christians and it opened with the lines, uh, you know, we appeal to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the prohibitions against abortion get stronger. So uh, Christians have, a, have had a vested interest in seeing at least some semblance of the Hippocratic tradition continuing. Um, but scholars have questioned the, the, the Hippocratic Oath and the whole body of Hippocratic, Hippocratic literature. There's a whole corpus of work um, for, for various reasons. Uh, one, we, it, it's pretty well established that uh, it's not, you know, hip, the uh, Hippocrates is not the author. We don't know who is. Um, its origins are frankly mysterious. Some have said that this can be traced back to a Pythagorean cult. Um, this is the same... Uh, uh, Pythagoras, who, uh, who gave us that lovely geometrical theorem, the Pythagorean theorem. Um, 
There are, uh, yeah, A squared, B squared, C squared. Yeah, anyway, yes. Um, trying to suppress painful memories. Uh, um, what, what's interesting is that in this, this body of well-established uh, information, there are, other, uh, there are other tracks in this body of information that just frankly prescribe abortion. So the, the, even the oath doesn't seem to fit with the literature of the time. It's also widely known that in the Greco-Roman culture, pro, uh, you know, uh, abortion was practiced on a fairly routine level, and others have said, look, we, we clearly ignored the surgery prohibition, uh, why not just throw the rest of this out? So we've, we've got somewhat of a new ethic, and I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's common for Christians to bash these fourfold bioethical principles. Principles They're fairly new. I don't want to bash them. I, I, I admit that they have been, they have proven very helpful for physicians and doctors uh, in, in navigating some complexities. If you are a physician or a caregiver on some Sort uh, of some sort, and you've ever been involved in any kind of uh, case study or ethical consult, you will probably have heard these terms until they make you nauseous. Um, they were they were developed. Uh, they they came out of an older study called the Belmont Report. But uh, these fourfold principles have been heralded as the new ethic for medicine, in part because. They don't reflect this ancient Greek tradition that, that we're not sure what it means anymore. And quite frankly, these principles, notice that they're, they're free of religious language and jargon, and they seem to apply across the board to everybody. Why don't we make these, uh, these the new rule? In fact, this is right out of page one of their fifth edition, Principles of Biomedic Ethics. It's now in its eighth edition, but they just in one sentence, just dismiss the whole Hippocratic tradition. Yeah, 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 it was great, rich storehouse, blah, blah, blah. But um, they're just inadequate for, uh, for a contemporary biomedical context. So uh, because we have these new principles, which indeed have been helpful on some level, uh, we don't need the old ethic. Although what tends to happen is that when you, when you run up against options or you, you run into difficulties in medicine, typically autonomy and beneficence, or which just helping someone, wanting to do good to another, wanting to increase care, they end up uh, conflicting with one another and they have to be balanced off of one another. Uh, Gilbert Mylander, and I rely on him for, for uh, much of what comes to, to follow, he's observed that this is a minimalist, lowest common denominator ethic which assumes that we can all agree on something, and he, his argument is, and he writes as a Christian, why can't we all just bring our deepest commitments to the table and fight it out and let us have winners and losers? But at least, you know, civilly, and, and at least so, okay, well, I want to present a Christian position. If we lose out, so be it. We lose out. We've articulated where we stand. Rather than saying, well, we all just agree to these four principles, and we try to apply them uh, as best we can. Other critics have, have noticed or have observed, I, I wrote an article in Ethics and Medicine last year, uh, even about the concept of autonomy. I asked the question, well, who's autonomy? Because um, autonomy means different things for different people, and if you really want to get at a definition, you have to start looking at people's worldview and tradition and background, and before you know it, you're right back at religion and ultimate commitments and all of those other things. Same thing with justice. Whose justice are we talking about? Is justice just fairness? I mean, is that, that's a dominant concept in our culture. It's not fair. Okay, that's not just. 
Well, that may be one meaning of justice, but as Christians, I would hope that we would want to say something more. Um, you know, did, did God treat us fairly? Um, or or uh, is God just in more profound and deep ways? Um, and is justice connected with grace and faith and salvation in giving us precisely what we don't deserve? That concept of justice is utterly foreign in our culture. Um, great. Are we, doing, are we doing okay on time? I'm going to... I'm getting there, so um, bear, bear with me. Um, how, would, how would we like to die uh, is uh, a question that, you know, and this is, this is not rocket science. Technology, these cultural forces have shaped how we want to die. Um, this, is, uh, this is from uh, a, a work entitled uh, The Litany of Saints, uh, and um, this is what Christians used to profess from a sudden death Deliver us, O oh Lord. Um, this is not always. Uh, this is not always, frankly, if we're honest, uh, how we would like to die. Um, in fact, if I had my choice, I want to go in my sleep while I still have a reasonable level of autonomy and power, and I don't want any warning. I just want to wake up and be in heaven. Um, amen. That's right. We, we, need, we need more Elijahs, right? Just come and carry me away. Um, but the reality is, is that um, medicine is, it, that, may not be, uh, that may not be so possible. Uh, Henry Greenberg is a director of a hospital coronary unit, gave a paper at a conference on preventing fatal heart attacks. <laughs> and he, he, the, the title of the paper is In Praise of Sudden Death. Uh, he conducted an informal poll of his colleagues and found that there was not one single person who expected, who wanted anything but an unexpected sudden death while still in the pink of health, preferably around, you know, early to mid-80s. But again, Christians didn't always think that way, in part because uh, we used to experience death on a regular basis and more intimately, and uh, the powers that medicine now possesses were, were not readily available then. Uh, and so instead, Christians developed literature called the Ars Moriendi, or the Art of Dying, which pointed Christians, it instructed Christians on how to die. And it was, it was moral, it was spiritual, it was how to confess sin and receive assurance of God's forgiveness. It was prayers offered to God. Uh, the Anglican theologian Jeremy Taylor even wrote in one of his works that you know, it's okay to groan on your deathbed. And so uh, death was a vastly different experience, and it, it doesn't need to be that different for believers today. Uh, we just have more technology to, to manage. Uh, and I don't want to over-spiritualize that either. There was also a commendation of death that was probably not healthy. And there's a famous uh, book written by David Stannard. It's called uh, The Puritan Way of Death, where he, he uh, cites and takes literature from pastors and, and chronicles from history how the Puritans died in America. Uh, and he, his conclusion was is that their theology made their deaths worse than pagans' death because they had all this heavy spiritual baggage to deal with. Uh, and w- what I mean by there is that uh, Puritan theology was very informed by John Calvin 
and Calvin's theology uh, emphasized, well, I think Calvin's theology was emphasized more than Calvin himself probably would have liked, um, this notion of divine election, Ephesians chapter 1. You have been elected for salvation before the foundations of the earth. So the Puritans often spoke of salvation, ironically, not in terms of the cross and do you believe the gospel, but are you elect? And by definition, because God's will in this area is inscrutable, you could never know. So when you found yourself on the precipice of eternity, you were faced with the added pressure of knowing, of trying to discern whether or not you were elect. And the deep irony here is that one of, one of the surest signs that you were indeed one of God's elect for salvation was that you were unsure of your uh, eternal salvation and you would throw yourself on God's mercy. Because if you thought you were one of the elect, that's the sign that you're probably prideful and that you're not elect. And so, um, so, so, so the Puritans would, would, would die with this added uh, moral burden of wondering whether or not, or wondering where they stood with God. So it, it made physiological death um, and, and the emotional toll even twice, if not multiple times over, stronger and more intense. Okay. Um, so I, I, the, the rest of the time, I just want to uh, try to offer some, and these are very high-level reflections on um, how we are to think about, about death and, and dying. And I, I think um, the reason I start with we're created in God's image be, is because um, it's important for us to understand who we are and um, because who we are uh, will in a large part determine how we handle death and, and how we die. Um, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we've been created in God's image um, this, that single verse has spawned hundreds of thousands of pages of reflection on what it means to be created in God's image. It used to be that it was thought, well, it's you know, rationality or it's these capacities that we have that animals don't have. That may be part of it, uh, but I've, uh, I just read through uh, a, a commentary by Dietrich Bonhoeffer on, on the, these first three chapters of Genesis and found them uh, interesting and, and very helpful. Um, and he he underscores an aspect that probably hadn't been talked about before, and, and that is, that is uh, if we think about God as a social being or social reality, which sounds kind of whacked out when you first hear it, but if you think of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, eternal community throughout all time, um, even before time, if you want to put it in those terms, um, God God himself is triune, which means God is not a solitary being. God relates to Father and Holy Spirit from eternity. Therefore, if we are created in God's image, we are made to be relational beings. Um, And so he defined the Imago Dei as being created with freedom, but this freedom is not to do whatever we want with. It's not a a property we possess. It's a relationship. In other words, freedom only makes sense if it's understood within the context of some type of limits. Um, This kind of freedom is something vastly different from autonomy as we commonly understand it. When we think think of autonomy as being free from limits and outside constraints, Bonhoeffer would say that's, that's precisely wrong. We are created as limited beings and creatures and we are meant to be in relationship with each other which by definition means we have limits we relate to god 
we relate to others, and others have a claim on us. We are a community of people. I hope I did justice to Bonhoeffer. His, uh, he, he said a lot more, and I've, I found it very, very helpful. Um, I think some other things to keep in mind uh, is that we're, maybe this is, is basic and simple, but we're, we're finite creatures. We, um, we are not immortal. We were formed from the dust, Genesis tells us. Um, and, and the second point, and this, this is a more subtle point, um, but I think it's important. Um, we don't, we don't, I don't see any evidence in, in the scripture, and I'm citing numerous other sources. This is not, this is not new to me. Uh, we don't possess an immortal soul, but the Bible talks about us as embodied souls and ensouled bodies. That um, we are both. We are both together. Um, to talk about an immortal soul uh, in a body is exactly how Plato talked about about the human creature. Um, Genesis talks about God breathing into the nostrils of Adam. Um, this is why St. Augustine could, could say that we are, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, uh, we are animated earth. That is, our, our life, in our life, we are sustained by God. We don't have God within us, but God breathes life in us as embodied creatures. Now, there, there may be post-death, we, we can... You know, I, we can talk about that later. Uh, there may be uh, what's called a disembodied state where at death um, we may be present with God immediately and await the resurrection body. That, that's one possibility. But that's not the way things are supposed to be. This, this means that uh, bodies matter. We are ensouled bodies and, and, and embodied souls. Uh, and yes, the Bible uses body and soul language. We're not disputing that at all. Um, but we, we, we run into problems if we start talking about them as separate parts of our being. Um, we Christians do not put our hope in an immortal soul. We put our hope in God who has the power to resurrect us body and soul from the dead. This is precisely how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15. So I, I'd want to put too fine of a point on it, but... Uh, some have said, and I agree, we are our bodies. We don't just have bodies, we are our bodies. You cannot, we cannot relate to each other apart from our bodies. It is, uh, Gilbert Mylander again has said, the body is the locus or the place of personal presence. This becomes significant when we think about those, for instance, who may be in a persistent vegetative state, uh, because if we start defining people in terms of their capacities or their supposed activities of their soul or their mind, there is the temptation to deprive them of care. But if we remember that these kinds of patients are the weakest members of our community as embodied souls and ensouled bodies, then they ought to be especially worthy of our care. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, uh, again, uh, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. If only he had said when that time is, that might have been better. But uh, there's a, it's a recognition that we are finite beings. We are not long for this world. Karl Barth made a great point when he said we are not to pursue life at all costs. And in his words, he said, we, we run into problems when we make life itself our ethical Lord instead of God who is the giver and taker of life. 
Yes, um, in other words, life is not an absolute good. It is a relative good relative to God. We can be thankful for life. We should pursue uh, means to extend it. Uh, but it is not the greatest good. This is what enabled Paul to say, to, you know, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. And that is a very real tension within which our lives are situated. We, we know there is something better. We know there is the resurrection to come. Um, these types of reflections need to inform how we think uh, about death and dying. And then we have uh, an interesting lesson from King Asa. Again, credit to Gilbert Mylander who reflects on this verse in Second Chronicles. You wouldn't think that that would have any bearing on today in medicine. This is King Asa. was was a wicked king in the 39th year of his reign. Uh, he gets disease in his feet and it became severe. Uh, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord but sought help from physicians. Um, this suggests a couple things. The first is that sometimes we seek things from medicine that it simply cannot provide. Whether that be a form of uh, wholeness or health or a sense of invulnerability that we were never meant to harbor anyway. The, the more troubling sense, and I, think, I don't think we have to take this seriously, is that God's help in this case could only come from God directly and always only comes from God directly rather than help being mediated through physicians. I, I, Mylander re rejects that thought, and, and I do too. I think um, um, medicine is a, it, it can be a powerful instrument of God's redemptive activity, absolutely. But it does help put some things in perspective. Uh, I reflect, at, well, this is Mylander again. Sorry, this is the longest quote I'll subject you to. But he's reflecting on this text. Um, the warning alerts us not to ask of medicine more than it can offer. Through doctors, God often heals our diseases and sometimes perhaps even or treats even our more general feeling that although we have no identifiable disease, we are not well, are not whole. But doctors are not saviors. They may heal our diseases, but increase thereby our sense of invulnerability. A healing that would be disastrous for our spiritual health. On the other hand, they may be unable to heal our disease, but accepting suffering and dependence as part of our personal history, we may be drawn closer to God. That's, that's the other side of, of suffering. Is all, is all suffering to be eliminated? Is there some suffering that can be redemptive? Is there suffering that can't be medic uh, mediated or rather uh, medicated um, but might otherwise foster uh, a deeper dependence on God and, and lead to something good? Um, I'm not saying that suffering, uh, I'm not saying that we have to say suffering is good. In fact, I think um, suffering is not good, but God can redeem suffering and he can redeem us through uh, unrelieved suffering if that wasn't too confusingly put. Um, I think there are two extremes that, that we need to be, be wary of. This, this comes from Paul Ramsey, who was one of the first Christian ethicists to write publicly about this in a book called The Patient as Person. Um, in a chapter entitled On Only Caring for the Dying, he talked about these two extremes. The first is uh, a, just a refusal to acknowledge death. This is where we pursue every possible course of action um, 
under the, this increasing sense that we can eke out a few more days of life even if, uh, even if the gains are minimal or marginal. Uh, this refusal can amount to spending the last days of one life in a kind of false hope for, for more life. And if, if, if you've been in... I, I've talked to enough doctors and physicians and, and those in medicine who could, could count innumerable cases where this... Uh, this is what they experienced. Uh, a, a patient wanted every and any possible treatment to avoid, to avoid the inevitable end. Uh, the other side, uh, however, is um, this notion that uh, once we decide that um, our quality of life has diminished significantly, that we just go ahead and let's try to pull the plug or aim at death. Um, I get the assisted suicide movement reflects this position. It is, it is growing in strength. Uh, and it, it, is a, it is a deadly combination of our fear of suffering and I think our focus on autonomy. I, I don't, I don't want to be too critical here because um, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, on some level we all are afraid of death. Um, in, in, in all of my, you know, I, again, I spent several months studying death and reading philosophers and theologians. I mean, it did nothing to mitigate any kind of sense of foreboding or fear or avoidance in me that uh, this is a day I don't want to talk about and I don't want it to come. But this, this view, aiming to hasten death, seeks to eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer, right? We're just, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pursue death. Um, but several have noted um, that if our concept of what constitutes suffering as it continues to broaden, um, so do the reasons for pursuing euthanasia. Does that, does that make sense? If, if, if our understanding of suffering gets broader, then uh, the, the calls for euthanasia will only get stronger. And, and we, we have seen this happen uh, in the Swiss suicide clinic, uh, ironically with the name Dignitas, right? Because a dignified death is a death on one's own terms. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I subscribe to this bioethic newsletter, and almost every other week there's a new... Uh, story about Dignitas and horrifying examples of people simply giving up on life and deciding that if life is no longer meaningful, I, 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 I don't want to exist anymore. Uh, within the last couple of years, uh, um, there was a, a British footballer, um, soccer, um, uh, in, his, in his early 20s and enormously gifted, suffered a, a a freak accident on the pitch and uh, was left paralyzed. And he was so devastated uh, by this injury because in, in his, you know, football was his life and his life was effectively over. Uh, and his parents uh, agreed. They, they all flew together to, to Switzerland. And um, he terminated his life with the help of physicians. Uh, and all he needed was, was his parents there. And he was in his 20s. He was a sound mind and he was coherent um, and um, you know he, he was not imminently dying granted I wouldn't wish paralysis on anybody but this is a, a classic example of um, pursuing death when we determine that life is no longer worth living but Ramsey's whole point in this article is that both of these extremes no longer constitute what medicine should call care. I mean, to give up trying to treat someone is not to stop caring for them. It is only, in Ramsey's word, to, words, to stop doing one thing so that you can start doing another. That is, 
managing pain, um, providing uh, spiritual and resources, um, helping facilitate a, a peaceful departure. Uh, the hardest question of all is, is when, when to refuse treatment. Um, I, I think this is perfectly morally acceptable. Unless we refuse treatment to deliberately die, then we're back in the kind of uh, suicide uh, area again. Uh, and there is an important distinction that's been made between intention and uh, intended and unintended outcome. This goes back uh, to, to Thomas Aquinas, um, a, a, a Roman Catholic or Catholic theologian, I would just say. He was a, a theologian of the church in the medieval era. Um, he said this, uh, this is Exodus 22, this is where it comes from. If a thief is found breaking in and is beaten to death, no blood guilt is in, incurred. Um, but if it happens after sunrise, you're guilty. The, the whole idea is if it's dark and um, you're trying to defend yourself or, uh, or your children or something and you happen to kill a perpetrator, you're not guilty of murder because that was not your intent. But if it happens after daylight, um, then you're guilty. Uh, and this is uh, what Aquinas said, and if this, uh, if this is not helpful, I'll try to give a couple better examples. Nothing hinders one act from having two effects. One is intended, the other one is beside the intention. Now, moral acts take their species according to what someone intends. I did not intend to kill this perpetrator. I intended to protect my family and my property. I swung in the dark and crushed his skull. That was not my intention to kill somebody. Um, but if it's daylight, then you, it's different. Uh, now it's hard to say that you didn't intend death. So what is beside the intention that this person gets killed uh, is, is called accidental. Um, this has been, I think, very useful in, in, in medicine. Um, and I'll, I'll give a couple examples. Um, say, for instance, a Jehovah's Witness comes into uh, comes into the hospital, has had an accident, and needs a blood transfusion. I mean, badly, needs a blood transfusion. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses are, uh, they have religious objections to blood transfusion, regardless of whether that's a justified objection. Uh, that's besides the point. But if a Jehovah's Witness said, uh, as, as a follower, as a follower of God, this violates my belief, I, w- I will not do it because I am being faithful to God, um, then if they die, they have not aimed at their death. They realize that it may be an imminent outcome, but they have not pursued their own death. Their intention was to be faithful to their faith. Um, so it, it's technically not an, an act of suicide. F- far more common happens, and I've only got one page, so we're, we're almost there, and I'll, I'll go quickly. Uh, and and this, this is far more common and is a real-life issue is... Uh, it concerns those who are not only terminally ill, but imminently dying, say within, within a, a week to 10 days or within hours. Um, it is not unusual, especially in certain forms of cancer, for patients to experience excruciating pain. Um, providing care may involve prescribing increasing levels of morphine and other narcotics that will, uh, that will affect respiration and usually will bring death sooner. So if, and this is, this is spl- it may sound like splitting hairs, but I don't think it is. If your intention is to care for this person by easing pain, 
knowing that the outcome will be that they die sooner, that is morally permissible. Um, now, I, I think I, I have no problems with that, but I also think in, um, in our world, and quite frankly what the Bible tells us about our own hearts is that it is impossible for us always to discern our intentions perfectly. Uh, and, and, and there may be some guilt attached to a, a, a loved one who is suffering and you, you may be uh, pushing the doctor or nurse for increasing levels of painkillers, not only because you want them to stop suffering, but you just want it to be over. Um, I don't know that we can always discern our intentions there, um, but I think that is, uh, that's, a valid, uh, that's a valid distinction to make, and I think it even extends as far as uh, what is known as terminal sedation, which is... Um, there have been cases where uh, folks near the very end of life ha- are in such excruciating pain that they are not responding to significant amounts of, of morphine and painkillers. Um, well, one of the final possibilities is terminally sedating them, which just means you're, you're giving them so much that it just um, they may never wake up or be conscious again, and you're willing to live with that because it puts them out of... It, it, they're no longer consciously aware of their pain, so long, so long as we know. Uh, it's, it's called terminal sedation. Um, in, in rare cases, um, it's possible to back off medication to, to see if, if they've calmed down a bit, but um, the, 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 the issue there is that you, you really need to be ready to say goodbye um, because, uh, because typically that's it. Um, uh, uh, refusing treatment then. Uh, when to refuse treatment? I, I think it's, um, it's morally acceptable. Uh, I've already made the distinction between intention and outcome. Um, Mylander makes two broad categories. They need more refinement, I think, but, but they're, I, I think they're appropriate. Uh, the first one is we can refuse treatment when we think it's going to be useless. And this is obviously in, in, in speaking with your physician and caregivers about the, the prospects uh, and the outcomes and how helpful this will be, uh, but they're, they're just like uh, Katie Butler's mom, she, she recognized that, you know, 86, heart surgery, potential risks, long recovery time, this is, um, this, th- this is something that I, maybe not be useless, but the second category, this might be excessively burdensome. This, th- this might be more than I want to bear. Even if that surgery were successful, it might give her five more years or, or, or even more. Um, these two extremes exist between, uh, no, between these two extremes, there is this uh, freedom to refuse treatment. Um, I, I know uh, more, more needs to be said there. W- what, does, what does burdensome mean? Th- these, are very, uh, these are very tricky categories to try to discern. Um, uh, let, let me say one, one final thing. Uh, there's another issue of, of who decides. We have, uh, we have now living wills, power of attorney. These are becoming far more common. Uh, living wills were established in California in 1976. Uh, the idea here was, um, it, notice, notice the date there. This is also uh, the, right around, uh, well, this is when the Quinlan uh, Karen Ann Quinlan case had, had been discussed. There was concern, again, that um, it basically says, I'm going to prescribe things that I would like if I'm no longer decisional or I'm, I'm no longer able to make decisions for myself. Here's what I want, here's what I don't want. I, I think 
um, that can be perfectly uh, appropriate. I think some of these things had come into play over a fear, again, that overly aggressive doctors would do too much rather than too little. There's no single uh, Christian teaching on this. Um, Some criticism has been uh, leveled that, well, this kind of reflects uh, a a desire to extend our autonomy beyond when we even can make decisions anymore. And is, is that always helpful? I do think we need to be careful about living wills. Uh, it, it, for another reason, it, it's nearly impossible for us to imagine what it would be like to be in a particular case and to make a decision based on, on that. Um, something that's uh, less bent on, on controls, power of attorney or a, a proxy who's authorized to make decisions on your behalf. Um, this is an attempt to say something less about the future. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything to forbid the use of either of those. I just do think we need to be uh, careful when we have these uh, drafted. Um, the, the, final, the final comment I'll make, and this is an article that uh, Gilbert Mylander wrote uh, about this issue. Um, he, he, in October of 91, uh, he said, uh, I want to burden my loved ones. Um, and the whole idea was, um, as a Christian, I would hope that my family, and maybe, uh, maybe his family, this works, I would, I would hope that my wife would know, uh, not know what I wanted, but to know what was best for Gilbert Mylander in a particular case. So he actually argues for the, uh, for the other side of this. And, you know, a lot of these things are well-intentioned. I don't want to burden my loved ones. I don't want to burden my family. I don't want there to be fights. Uh, let me just spell out clearly what I would like. Uh, he, he says, well, wait a minute, as, as Christians, and this is, this is a Christian point he's making, aren't we supposed to care, aren't we supposed to expect that uh, we actually place burdens on those who love us the most? Aren't, aren't we meant to burden our loved ones? He says, this may not be easy, but he said, um, I have authorized my wife to make decisions for as to what is best for me without having any clear discussions about I don't want this, 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 or this. And he says, I'm fine, I'm, I'm fine with that. He says, I spent so many, and my, my kids too, I can, I can place this burden on my kids. He said, I spent 20 years raising them, um, eating at McDonald's, teaching them how to ride a bike, going to boring baseball games. Now it's time for me to burden them. Um... um I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, th- there's so much more that could be said. I haven't even talked about palliative medicine or hospice. Um, you may have questions. I don't know how much time we have or if I've gone over. Um, for, for what it's worth, if, uh, if anyone's interested, I can, I can send the PowerPoint. If you want the PowerPoint presentation, I'm, I'm happy to share it. You can have it. And if you want this three-page article, I, I can happily attach that as a PDF too. Okay, yeah, great. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, we may need a physician in the house for this one. Uh, I was hoping no one would ask that question, but um, um, no, no, that's fine. Um, I, I, just, I just read uh, last month the, the President's Council on uh, the determination of death and the, the criteria for brain death. Um, here's my understanding, and um, like Audra, maybe you can correct me on this if I'm wrong. I'll put you on the spot as a physician. Um, uh, brain death, it, it, it's, 
it's a very, very misleading term because um, what, if someone has been, by the criteria, determined to be brain dead, um, they're dead dead. Um, what brain dead means, as, as I understand it, is that the, you, there is full loss of brain function. Um, that means that uh, the brain is so severely damaged that if a respirator is removed, some of the, some of the base functions of the brain, the, the patient will... I, I don't want to say the patient will die because uh, technically they're dead. So it's, the, the language is tricky. Um, th- there's been a discussion of how... There are very clear criteria on how to determine that. Um, but, but brain death is not the same as being in a persistent vegetative state. Those are two different things. Persistent vegetative state means that you have some brain function and it is associated with breathing. Um, now, that in, in, its, in its base form, that's about all that the brain is able to do. Um, there's even arguments over whether the brain is integrating function, and there's been some dispute on that. But um, insofar as the latest discussions have been, insofar as the human body with a severely damaged brain, there is a desire to interact with the external world by taking in air, just by respirating, that itself is considered alive. Um, but once, um, once that goes, and there have been some cases in, in the... I mean, the CNN just reported, there have been a couple cases where um, it said, uh, you know, the, uh, this, poor, this poor girl had a pretty routine surgery and something went horribly wrong and her, her brain went without oxygen for far too long and it, uh, it, it just, it, it, it ended, it nearly killed her entire brain or it stopped functioning and CNN said, a uh, brain-dead woman kept alive until they, the next day when they, uh, I think the respirator was detached and then they said she died the next day. Well, no, she died when they declared her brain-dead. Not everybody agrees. I mean, there's heavy philosophical disputes over, wait a minute, how can you ever call anybody dead for sure until, you know, you haven't, you know, y- you see their body lying there for four days and there's no signs of life. Um, Brain death, is, death is, has been very, very important uh, over another issue dealing with organ transplantation, uh, and that's become exceedingly important. And it creates yet another tension for physicians, because at what point does this person who is a donor, when do they stop becoming a patient, and when do they become a living cadaver for somebody else? And those, those decisions, and there's a whole panoply of... Uh, of thorny cases, and it's, it's, um, the, the need for organ donation is so great that you have, you know, the, the organ procurement, or, I think it's OPO, there, there's all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of things that are going on with, if you're an organ donor, um, there's a, hospitals have to sign up to certain things, and there's very tight protocols, physicians are instructed on using very particular language with the family, et cetera, et cetera. It, is, um, it can do good, but there's also some troubling things in organ donation because you are, you are literally at the razor's edge of two, two conflicts. Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, at, at what point? And, you know, we've heard cases of uh, organs being harvested from, in other countries from um, the prison population and others and... Um, well, that's, that's my best shot. Is there anything? Okay, well, good. All right. 
All right. Yeah. Yeah. This is maybe a personal question, but here this is your thing. Yeah. Which mm -hmm. from this world mm -hmm. to the next. Yeah. It, it, it was a sacred moment. This is my mom, by the way. Um, um, I, yeah, I happened to be present with my wife at uh, my grandmother's passing. And she, she uh, there's an interesting case there. She was 92, right? A few days from her 93rd birthday, was in the nursing home, but had some obstruction in her... Uh, is it large intestine or intestinal obstruction? And three different physicians said, we can't operate on you. You will likely bleed to death. And so she knew, and she, she faced it bravely, and she knew, she knew that was it. She couldn't, she couldn't physically process food anymore, and she tried liquids for a few days, and it just wasn't working. And so uh, the, the hospice was, care was brought in, and um, she, she maintains uh, consciousness right up until the very end and I mean I, I just I she was beyond speaking but she was still alert enough to groan when we were reading um, some psalms over her about you know how, how long are you going to afflict me Lord and I mean the the you know I don't that was a good death it, it, it was as good as you could hope for but I you know I would never say that was a beautiful death it was ugly it was ugly um, and it, it reminds us that, you know, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat anything. Um, but it was good. I mean, she, she was able to, we were able to read scripture over her as she passed away. And, um, you know, I, I, will t I will too, just I will never forget, you know, she had, um, you know, her lungs were filling with fluid and uh, mucus. And, you know, probably two minutes before she expired, they... Um, caregivers had to come in and, you know, down the throat one more time and suction all that junk out. And you could tell she just hated it. Um, but what, what, would you, you know, would you rather feel as if you're drowning? Um, so th th there was nothing, there's nothing good or nothing beautiful about it, but it was good um, and, and appropriate. And it was, it was a, sa yeah, it was a sacred moment. Um, it, you know, watching an animal pass away is not the same as watching a, a loved one die. Is that good? Yeah, should we? That's good. I'm ready to stop. This has been really heavy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, but I know, maybe you don't want to talk about this anymore. Maybe this is enough. But um, I, I, I suspect you really have, you may have some more specific questions that could be better addressed by a panel of people. Um, and, and maybe, maybe we could schedule, maybe we could do something like that in a few months once you've all recovered from all this. Um, um, but I, do, I don't think, I, I think the church, we need to do this as a church. We need to talk about this as, as a church. Um, and it's important, yeah. Did someone else have a qu qu final? Yes, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I hope not. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, let me just say, if, if you wanted to read one small book that deals with all of these issues from a Christian perspective, um, this is uh, Gilbert Mylander. He's at Valparaiso. He's about to retire. It's just called Bioethics. It's now in its third edition. But he, he addresses all these things, I think, with remarkable clarity and deep Christian conviction. Um, yes, yeah, a, a very, very, uh, very... Uh, deeply committed believer. I, I know him personally. I have the privilege of three times a year going out to San Francisco and I'm a part of a bioethic think tank and he's, he's there and I just, I, I'm going next weekend and I just try to soak up all I can when he's there. Um, just uh, the, the wisdom and years of study. He served on the President's Council for Bioethics and um, yeah, he's, he's got some wonderful reflections there. And what, what, what else was I going to say? Um, I've forgotten now. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that, but that's a real... I, what I was going to say is Mylander has an issue. Uh, he has a, a three pages on truth-telling. And uh, he talks about, um, you know... Be, being gentle, and, and maybe it's not our position to, I mean, you can injure with the truth. Um, in other words, it needs to be presented in a way that won't shut down um, spiritual uh, questioning and exploration if, if that's, um, I don't, he, he talks about, man, I'm, not, I'm not doing justice to what he says, but there's, he does talk about the importance of being truthful, but not uh, not equating that with always, uh, always saying um, all of the cold, hard facts. Um, yes, yeah, se- seasoned with yes, yeah, seasoned with grace. Um, yeah, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to. Um, he says, "Truth is the most complex concept of all." It means getting to the truth of the situation rather than the crude, literal, surface truth. To answer the question, would you like to see some pictures of my grandchildren? With the direct, literal truth, no, anything but that would be cruel. But is that the real question? The real question, if one has any sensitivity to humanity, is would you be kind enough to let me share some of my sentiments and reassure me that they are important and worthwhile, to which a decent person can only answer, I'd love to. Uh, and this, this isn't actually Mylander. This is, uh, this is an article by Miss Manners. Um, that's, some, that's some seriously heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah please do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your patience and... Uh...